Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Earlier this year, we learned that the Republican Party of Georgia had paid more than $200,000 in legal fees to lawyers defending the fake Republican electors, the Trump supporters who cosplayed as electoral, electoral college electors in the 2020 election. Well, tonight we got news that that 200 grand does not seem like money well spent. Tonight's news started with The Washington Post reporting that at least eight fake Trump electors have accepted immunity deals. The New York Times then advanced that reporting that at least one other elector also has a deal, although that person's identity remains unknown. In other words, a bunch of people are all talking. Now, this is all part of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's much broader investigation into all the ways Trump and his allies attempted to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. So that includes this fake elector scheme. It includes the Trump campaign's potential involvement in an unauthorized breach of election equipment, which took place in Coffee County in Georgia. And who could forget? It includes President Trump pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to just find 11,780 votes. Okay, so other than the $200,000 that appears to have been wasted by the Georgia GOP defending these fake electors, the other big number to know here is that there were 16 fake electors total in Georgia. The Washington Post's reporting shows eight of those electors with immunity deals. The New York Times suggests nine, but either way, that's all got to make the other electors a little nervous. Specifically, the Post points out that at least two of those other fake electors, the ones without immunity deals, they appear to remain targets of this investigation. One of whom, a man named David Schaefer, is the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. And then, of course, there's the bigger picture here. What this kind of cooperation at the lower levels of this scheme might mean for the bigger fish. Rudy Giuliani oversaw the entire fake elector scheme, so I can't imagine this is a great Friday night for Rudy Giuliani. And then there is Senator Lindsey Graham, who, despite being a senator from South Carolina, also allegedly pressured the Georgia Secretary of State to throw out some ballots. And then, of course, there is President Trump himself, who is undeniably at the center of all of this. We're going to have some expert help breaking all of this down in just a second. But before we do, I want to show you one thing from the legal filing that tonight's Washington Post reporting is based on. This is the transcript of an exchange between one of Fonnie Willis's prosecutors and the defense attorney for these fake electors. Fonnie Willis's prosecutor says, quote, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Either elector E is going to get this immunity and he's going to answer the questions or we're going to leave. And if we leave, we're ripping up his immunity agreement and he can be on the indictment. He can be on the indictment. Just last week, we got the news that Fonnie Willis was warning local law enforcement to be on high alert between July 11th and September 1st because she could announce potential indictments. And now this. If I were Donald Trump, I would make sure all my summer travel plans are refundable. 
Joining me now is former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst Barb McQuaid. Barb, thank you for being here. Am I right to focus on this exchange between the prosecutor and one of the defense attorneys where the prosecutor says his name will be on the indictment, not a potential indictment, but the indictment? Yeah, I, I think your, your reading is fair, Alex. The indictment suggests that it is not an if, but a when, that yes. there will be an indictment. And right now we're kind of sorting out who's going to be a witness and who's going to be a defendant. I mean, prosecutors want to go after the bigger fish. Some of these people who are fake electors are not household names. They are people who are kind of used as pawns, likely knew what they were doing, uh, but they may have some really valuable information that can help provide good incriminating evidence against some of the people who are higher up who are organizing uh, these kinds of schemes. And so they're valuable as witnesses. And, you know, it doesn't give uh, Fannie Willis great pleasure to prosecute some no-name person who was used as a pawn in this scheme. And so um, I think they probably very much want maybe all 16 of them to cooperate, but eight's a pretty good number and nine's even better. Yeah. Uh, but I agree with you that suggesting that, you know, I, I got eight. I don't need you. Um, take her to leave it. You want to be, you want to be a witness. You want to be a defendant. Choice is up to you. Uh, otherwise you will be on the indictment. Does say, say to me that there will be an indictment here. So and there's a real discrepancy between what the defense attorney for these eight with the immunity deal is saying in terms of their, what information they know about criminal activity from the filing tonight all of the electors, these are the ones with the immunity deal, remain united in their collective innocence and defenses, and none testified or believed that they or any other elector committed any wrongdoing, much less criminal acts, right? So then the question is, well, what do they know? If they, didn't, if they don't think they're guilty of anything and they don't know of any other criminal acts among electors, you pointed this out. Does this, do you infer from that that the information they have that is then useful to Fonnie Willis is information about people who aren't electors, information about people who are maybe higher up in the food chain, information about people like, I don't know, Lindsey Graham or Rudy Giuliani or some of the high level Trump officials who are orchestrating this? Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of these conflicting statements because they may be in some ways sort of self-serving. What they really need probably is a judge to make sure that these lawyers, that these clients are being well represented. When you have a joint defense, sometimes there can be a conflict of interest there. So that's that's one issue. Let's set that aside for a minute to answer your question. I think that Fonnie Willis isn't particularly interested in having one fake elector testify against another fake elector. Uh, as we said, these are small fish. Um, you know, if they committed a crime, we'll roll them into the indictment and that's fine. But where they're more valuable is identifying people up the food chain. Um, how is it that we had fake electors coming together in a number of different states? That's no coincidence that they all came together. What were they told? What was the purpose? Was this simply an honest provisional ballot just in case these fraud claims panned out and so that they'd have uh, certificates on the books when the deadline came and went? Or did they know, no, this is all part of this plot. We're going to tell, have Mike Pence take these and say they've created such an issue of confusion that we're going to throw out all the votes in Georgia and we're going to disregard those uh, or we'll let the legislature substitute its own choice for the electors there and we'll control the outcome of the election in that way. So I think what they're more interested in from these electors is not testimony against each other, but testimony against higher ups. Yeah, I mean, and that, that then begs the question of who doesn't have an immunity deal, right? And what is it? What are the, what are the implications of that? We know that there are three people who appear to remain targets of this investigation. One, 
David Schaefer, who we mentioned is the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. One is Georgia Senator Sean, uh, Sean Still, who is the person that confirmed the identity of the electors and let them into the room in the Capitol where they proceeded to do their thing. And then Kathy Latham, who played a key role in the Coffee County um, election sy- system breach. We know that Kathy Latham now has new counsel. We know that there is a ninth person whose identity remains TBD. Do you have any suspicions about who that could be or and or I should ask, Barb, if that person is maybe Kathy Latham, who has new counsel, what could be the implications there in terms of, you know, criminal charges? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to speculate as to who, who this might be and uh, what uh, what their role is. But, you know, prosecutors typically like to work their way up the criminal chain, you know, granting immunity to lower level uh, defendants. Uh, in exchange for their testimony and their cooperation is the way that prosecutors build cases all the time. And so it may be that you take the eight uh, who already have immunity and you ask them to talk about the roles of some of the people that you just identified. You know, I I believe there's reporting that David Schaefer told them that they had to keep very quiet uh, and conceal what it was they were doing when they were going to prepare this uh, false slate of electors. I mean, that suggests that he knew that he was engaging in wrongdoing. And so what you do perhaps is now you've got a strong case against him and see if you can flip him and get him to testify about who directed you to do this, to compile this list of fake electors. Did that come from somebody with the Trump campaign and work your way up the chain in that way? And so it appears that's what Fonnie Willis is doing. It is a uh, tried and true method that prosecutors use. And it seems like it's working here. Let me ask you, because you mentioned David Schaefer, a person of interest here, the chairman of the Georgia GOP. The New York Times reports tonight that Craig Gillen, the former deputy counsel, independent counsel in the 1980s Iran-Contra scandal, has been hired to represent David Schaefer. Gillen, the lawyer, specializes in cases involving racketeering which is among the charges being weighed by Fonnie Willis. We talk a lot about RICO charges. We talk a lot about racketeering in the context of this. Is that further? Is that a further proof point in your eyes, Barb, that that could be a charge that we hear more about this summer? You know, it's one little tea leaf. Um, you know, people who handle RICO matters also probably handle other kinds of white-collar crimes. So I don't know that it's dispositive, but it is interesting. And we've also heard before that Fonnie Willis has a lot of experience using RICO in gang cases, which is a little bit of an untraditional use. You know, typically we think of RICO as something that's used in organized crime. But, you know, there are some uh, factors in this case uh, that would make it a good case for RICO. Uh, you know, RICO brings with it typically high penalties, but it allows a prosecutor to bring in a number of different little schemes and pull them together under one umbrella if you can show some sort of, you know, united criminal purpose. And so, you know, you've got this thing going on in Coffee County. You've got the fake electors over here. Uh, you've got uh, intimidation of vote counters over there. You've got Brad Raffensperger being pressured to find 11,780 votes. And so perhaps RICO is a way to pull all that together in one case so that a jury gets to appreciate the full scope of the criminal conduct that's alleged here. Barb, we know that Giuliani, Meadows, Boris Epstein, and of course, Donald Trump are all persons of interest. Their names are mentioned a lot in the context of this. Who do you think, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at that, that group of individuals, who do you think potentially faces the most legal peril at this juncture? Well, I think all of them are likely facing legal peril. 
um, I, I think we're aware, perhaps, more of the legal peril of Rudy Giuliani because so much of what he did was in the, the, the daylight. Uh, the things he was doing very publicly, going before the legislature in Georgia, uh, lobbying and trying to get the votes thrown out. And so, in many ways, his role seems to be very obvious. But it's quite possible that people like Mark Meadows or Boris Epstein were also doing some of the things that were perhaps uh, a little more in the shadows that are just as egregious or maybe even more egregious than others. You know, it's why uh, you really have to wait and see what allegations come out in an, an indictment, if any, uh, before you can really decide who faces the most legal peril here. But, you know, certainly any of them have been implicated in the scheme in Georgia. And so, yeah, you know, we, we know from the grand juror who shared some views uh, about what the special grand jury was doing, they had recommended indictments for more than a dozen people. And so it wouldn't surprise me to see all of those people charged in perhaps a RICO or some sort of conspiracy where they are uh, equally uh, it, it, at risk of criminal conviction, prosecution, and exposure. Yeah, there are a lot of um, known unknowns, to paraphrase Donald, Donald Rumsfeld, but the thing we know tonight, which is fairly explosive and a big deal, even if you've been following this and might be a little bit jaded about all of it, there is an indictment coming. And you heard that from Fonnie Willis's team on that tape. That is what we know at this juncture. Barb McQuaid, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Alex. There is so very much to talk about this evening, including the mystery of the witness at Mar-a-Lago whose reported co cooperation caused Donald Trump to lash out today. Plus, that steady drip of new reporting about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his conservative activist wife, Ginny, that is raising all kinds of questions about the web of dark money that surrounds them. And that's coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. It was October 15th, 1964, and this was the headline on the New York Times. President's aide quits on report of morals case. Walter Jenkins resigned tonight as a special assistant to President Johnson after it became known that he had been arrested here last week on a charge of disorderly conduct involving indecent gestures. One of President Johnson's top aides, a man named Walter Jenkins, had just been arrested after he was discovered having sex with another man at a local YMCA. Jenkins' story is a sort of heartbreaking story about the way that closeted gay public officials were treated at the time. But for President Johnson, 
Back in 1964, it was also a huge political scandal that required immediate attention from some of his most trusted advisors. And so on the day that story broke, and again in the days to follow, President Johnson repeatedly called one of his closest advisors, a man named Abe Fortas. Here's a sample of one of those calls. It begins with Johnson and Fortas discussing whether everyone else in the White House had been checked to make sure they were not gay. I'm told that everybody else here has been checked. Oh, you can't be told anything. I mean, you can't believe them by God on oath. John Conley called me at 2 o'clock last night and said this thing's going to make a big difference, that it's already dropped us three points in Texas. I would like very much to have a few minutes with you today. I've got to make a nationwide television tomorrow, but you come right in when you get through and they'll locate me, Jack will find me, and we'll go to... I'll go right back over there just to get through here. So Abe Fortas was a man that President Johnson turned to for sensitive matters, like the Walter Jenkins scandal. He was close to the president. You've probably seen this famous picture of Johnson leaning over and laughing while getting right up in someone's face. And the man President Johnson is leaning over there is Abe Fortas. And so it was sort of a surprise when in 1965, Lyndon Johnson appointed his friend and his confidant, Abe Fortas, to be a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Abe Fortas was confirmed by the Senate later that year. But even though Mr. Fortas had been appointed to the Supreme Court, amazingly, he never stopped advising President Johnson. Fortas regularly attended White House staff meetings while he was on the Supreme Court. He advised President Johnson on secret court deliberations, and he even helped Johnson pressure senators who opposed the war in Vietnam. Now, I know what you're all thinking. That sounds like kind of a huge scandal. I mean, imagine how people would react today if Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was walking into cabinet meetings at the Biden White House and briefing the president on secret court discussions about how they were going, going to rule on his student loan program. Can you imagine? But at the time, Justice Fortas's relationship with President Johnson was not a big scandal, at least not big enough to get him kicked off the court. Eventually, though, Justice Fortas did find himself embroiled in a big scandal, one that ultimately forced him to resign from the Supreme Court. In 1969, Life magazine broke the news with this cover story, Justice Fortas and the $20,000 check. It revealed that Justice Fortas had accepted $20,000 from the family foundation of a man named Lewis Wolfson. Wolfson was a businessman who was being investigated for securities fraud at the time, and the prospect that his case could potentially end up in front of a Supreme Court justice whom Wolfson had given money to, well, that was considered a big deal. Justice Fortas promptly returned the money he had taken from Mr. Wolfson, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to save his reputation. Calls rang out for Justice Fortas to resign, and those calls came mostly from Republicans, like California Governor Ronald Reagan. Reagan told the Sacramento Bee, there's no question but that the confidence in the court has been shaken. And that year, President Nixon ordered the Justice Department to open an investigation into Justice Fortas and his relationship with that wealthy businessman, Lewis Wolfson. Remember that just a few years earlier, Abe Fortas had been walking in and out of the White House as a sitting Supreme Court justice. But as far as the public was concerned, that impropriety was nothing compared to the appearance of corruption when Abe Fortas took that large sum of money from someone who might eventually have business before the court. 
And so Justice Fortas, under immense pressure, resigned. Flash forward to today. And we have another Supreme Court justice revealed to be taking gifts and trips and engaging in real estate transactions, all of them involving large amounts of money from a wealthy businessman. Both Justice Clarence Thomas and the billionaire Harlan Crow have insisted that the gifts and the transactions did not need to be disclosed because the billionaire did not have business before the court. Now, this week, we have new reporting about yet more undisclosed money being funneled to Clarence Thomas's household, this time to his wife, Ginny Thomas. The Washington Post reports that back in 2012, Leonard Leo, the head of the conservative judicial group, the Federalist Society, that Leonard Leo directed tens of thousands of dollars in secret payments to Ginny Thomas. The Post reports that Leo ordered the money to be taken from a nonprofit that he advises and then paid to a firm run by Kellyanne Conway, that name might ring a bell, at the time she was a pollster. And she was a fairly well-regarded pollster at that. Kellyanne Conway was then instructed by Leonard Leo to use her firm to pay the money to Ginny Thomas, but to make sure and leave Ginny Thomas's name off the paperwork. Leo told Conway, quote, no mention of Ginny, of course. Of course. NBC News has not seen these documents and has not independently verified this report. In a statement to the Post, Mr. Leo defended his actions, including his decision to keep Thomas's name off the paperwork, saying, quote, the work Ginny Thomas did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or with other legal issues. Knowing how disrespectful, malicious and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Ginny. Kellyanne Conway and the Thomases did not respond to requests for comments from the Post. But this latest scandal has raised a bunch of new questions for the Thomas family and their benefactors, including questions about the nonprofit that Leonard Leo used to pay Ginny Thomas. According to the Washington Post, that nonprofit was taking in less than $50,000 a year back in 2011. But in 2012, the same year those secret payments were made to Ginny Thomas, that same nonprofit suddenly pulled in $1.5 million in anonymous donations. $1.5 million. And $150,000 of that money was spent on polling. Who was pouring all that money all of a sudden into Leonard Leo's nonprofit? Was that money secretly going to Ginny Thomas? Where was it going? And what experience or expertise did Ginny Thomas have that would make her someone you would want handling your polling? especially if you were already a polling expert. I'm going to talk to one of the reporters who broke the story and one of the people pushing to fix our broken Supreme Court. Coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. 
Ashley for the love of home. Leonard Leo has single-handedly changed the face of the judiciary. He has many hats. That isn't even all he does. He doesn't really tell all that he does, but I know enough to know the man is a force of nature. That force of nature Ginny Thomas referenced there was Federalist Society leader Leonard Leo. Yesterday, we learned that Leo, who has had quite a hand in shaping the Supreme Court and much of the federal judiciary, that Leonard Leo also reportedly had a hand in lining Ginny Thomas's pockets at least a decade ago. According to The Washington Post, Leo directed then-pollster Kellyanne Conway to pay Ginny Thomas for unknown work in 2011 and 2012. That reporting, which NBC has not yet verified, is the latest in a running list of Thomas family ethics scandals. Joining us now are Gabe Roth, executive director of Fix the Court, and Emma Brown, Washington Post investigative reporter who broke that story about Leonard Leo directing those secret payments to Ginny Thomas. Um, Emma, let me just start with you because you had the breaking news here. I, can you... There are a lot of questions about this arrangement between Leonard Leo, Kellyanne Conway, and Ginny Thomas. What do we know about the Judicial Education Project, a small nonprofit that was making like very little money until the time at which it funneled $150,000 or $100,000 to Ginny Thomas? Well, the Judicial Education Project is the nonprofit that was the source of the um, $25,000 that uh, Leo um, was saying should go to Ginny Thomas through Kellyanne Conway's firm. It was, as you said, it was a small um, nonprofit, not bringing in very much money at all until 2012, when it reported revenues about $1.5 million. And, and that since has grown into just a financial juggernaut of um, revenues more than $100 million. It is one uh, one part of sort of the interlocking network of nonprofits that Leo um, has a hand in. He he uh, told us he was an advisor to the Judicial Education Project, and in 2012, which was the year that he directed these payments from the Judicial Education Project to Ginny Thomas, um, it filed its first amicus brief before the Supreme Court. It was in the landmark uh, voting rights case, Shelby versus Holder. That was the case in which the court on a five to four vote struck down a provision of the law that was meant to protect minority voters. Um, Clarence Thomas voted, um, you know, with them that narrow majority, but he wrote separately to say he would have gone even farther. Um, he, in that outcome that he said he endorsed is the same outcome actually that the Judicial Education Project had endorsed in its amicus brief. I mean, it's not like our reporting doesn't show that the nonprofit or its payment uh, to Jenny Thomas, uh, swayed Clarence Thomas because this was a position he had had in the past. But, you know, the, the bar for recusal for a federal judge is, um, a, a reasonable uh, person would, would question the, uh, impartiality of the judge. So, um, you know, ethics experts we talked to were divided on whether he should have recused in that case. But yeah, then there's Gabe is the no mention of Ginny, of course, caveat, right? Course. Which to me is like, if anything's going to ring an alarm bell, it's the idea that these payments, we can't talk about actually who they're going to. And they're no. funneled through a third party from just a sunlight point of view, from a transparency and disclosure point of view. How can this be? 
Well, it's very easy to hide that money. 501c3. I mean, I have a 501c3. So if you, so you could be so paying I could, I could be Thomas. paying Jenny Thomas right now. Your check's in the mail. Uh, but the thing is, is that when justices, so justices do have to fill out a financial disclosure report every single year. And we know that there are a lot of omissions that Clarence yeah, Thomas are. has had in his financial disclosure report in the 32 years he's been on the court. But all he has to list is his wife's employer and his wife's employer. She's self-employed. It's Liberty Consulting. She doesn't have to say, or uh, sorry, Justice Thomas doesn't have to say where that money is coming in. So if uh, Leonard Leo pays or Kellyanne Conway or any of these uh, 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 Trump uh, or, and, and right wing officials pay one of the pay Ginny Thomas, all it, it doesn't have to be reported in a public way. So we don't actually know. I mean, Emma's reporting is, is great. And I think that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. But it's possible that there were many checks over many years. Well, yes. All of a sudden it goes from this small little nonprofit and then all of a sudden it's getting windfalls. It becomes, as Emma says, a financial juggernaut. And oh, look, it's it's lining the pockets of the wife of a Supreme Court justice who is going to rule on the side that that same nonprofit would prefer on a landmark case on voting rights. I do. I want to ask, because we're talking about what we know at this point about the, the ethics scandal surrounding the Thomas family. Can we pull up the timeline of, of there are a couple years here where it seems like it's just a cash bonanza, right? Like 2001, Thomas is talking about the disclosing the, the Bible he's been given. He's disclosing the gift tuition money from the pest control owners, Earl and Louise Dixon. And then in 2008, Harlan Crow starts dropping maybe $100,000 on tuition. Harlan Crow builds a heritage museum in Thomas's hometown. Harlan Crow contributes half a million dollars to Ginny Thomas's employer. Liberty, Liberty Central. Ironically, uh, the Supreme Court, of course, strikes down campaign finance restrictions in Citizen United. And then it's like we're off to the races. Leonard Leo is directing these payments. We're getting dark money. It's just a series of years. Right. Crows buying property from Thomas. There is. Do you have a sense, Gabe, that <laughs> that is that there was a kind of peak and then a decline in terms of what was being done and accepted in the way of these gifts, or that there's just more that we don't know about that hasn't yet been reported? Yeah, I think there's more that we don't know about that hasn't been reported. And it seems that the nature of the gifts, uh, as has been reported, is this yearly luxury trip. So whether it was to the Greek Isles or Indonesia or New Zealand, uh, Thomas goes seemingly every year to a, a resort in upstate New York. So I think it's maybe the, some of the payments that you pointed to in the full screen graphic did seem to increase, but this seems to be an ongoing relationship where Thomas is just being lavished a year after year. Sometimes with Leo, they're with him. There's that famous painting with yes. Leonard Leo and Mark Pauletta and 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 uh, and Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow all sitting smoking cigars. I think that is sort of like the symbol of the corruption that you have these these forces that are all joining together and they're not even hiding it. Well, that, actually, that's not true. They're hiding most of it. Yes, because some of it. We've had to have all this reporting to learn about it. But that one painting is just like it's the new dogs playing poker. It is. Um, um, Emma, it feels like every day there is a new story about this. And I wonder from a reporter's standpoint, is it <laughs> some of this was happening all along? I mean, these, some of this had been reported out in years past, but it feels like there is a groundswell of people that are raising their hands and saying, oh, I have a story about Clarence Thomas. I have a story about Clarence Thomas. I'm not going to ask you to reveal your sources, but can you give us perspective on the sort of chatter that's happening in and around Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas ethics scandals? Well, it's interesting, you know, back in like 2011, there was a lot of reporting also about 
Thomas and about ethics. And at that time, um, it was revealed by um, a couple of sort of good government groups uh, that he had not reported Ginny Thomas's uh, source of her income, her employment for years after initially reporting that when he got on the court. So there's this sort of spate of reporting then, and then it kind of faded away. And now it does seem like um, we're back in a moment where um, the media is uh, really scrutinizing Thomas and, and other justices. And it just feels like a moment where the, the court, the, you know, the, the scrutiny um, is not going to go away. Yeah, well, that and then that then sort of goes to to your ends, Gabe, in terms of what can be done aside from casting um, a, a very close eye on what's been happening at the Supreme Court. What kind of reforms are even possible? I did not realize that Sheldon Whitehouse and Hank Johnson in the House are sending letters to the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the agency that's charged with administering the court's to refer Thomas to the AG, Merrick yes. Garland, for investigation. Merrick Garland has a lot on his plate. He does. But, I mean, where, where, what can be done to, to fix this? Yeah, I mean, I've called on Garland to appoint a special counsel because he has so much yeah. on his plate. And we much feel, like Richard Nixon did for Abe Fortas. There you go. Uh, yeah, I think that, well, a, f- a few things. One is there needs to be a strong response now. And the reason I say that is... Thomas will not be on the Supreme Court for a long time, but his acolytes will be on the Supreme Court Wait, well into the. Why don't you think he'll be on the court for a long time? Do you think well, just he's because 74 of age? years old? Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to be on. So, you know, he's not going to live till 100. You don't think he's going to resign? No, no, of course not. Um, I think, yeah, and I think that calls to get him to resign and impeach are, are kind of a waste of time. Sorry, everyone, but I think that what we need to do is send a strong message. So whether that be investigation by a special counsel, investigation by the Judiciary Committee in the Senate and potentially in the House, investigation by the Judicial Conference, fining Thomas under the law for every omission within the statute of limitations, he could be fined $50,000. So we got to go back. I think the statute of limitations is about four years. Got to see how many of those in the last four years. We should find him. We should pass new laws that have a code of conduct that's enforceable and stronger gift travel uh, personal hospitality rules like the House and Senate do. But I'm really worried about this next generation of uh, judges and justices because so many of them look up to Thomas jurisprudentially. I don't want them to be looking up to Thomas ethically. A dozen of them are already in seats in lower court judges. And you know the second that there's a President Haley or a President DeSantis or a President Hutchinson, Thomas is going to resign. And one of those former clerks is going to replace him. And I don't want it to be, you know, Harlan Crow's next project. Wow. So I think sending a strong message now will have ripple effects for generations. President Hutchinson. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a future that remains ill-defined. But, but do you think we're getting there? I, th- I think we're getting close. I think there are, you know, the, there was the first ever bipartisan Supreme Court ethics bill in the Senate. There'd been one in the House about five years ago, but the first one Supreme Court ethics bill was introduced in the House by Angus King and Lisa Murkowski about 10 days ago. And it's, it's very basic. It says code of conduct for the justices enforceable with an ethics officer. And by the way, if there's another major leak, don't do a stupid internal investigation yes. that doesn't find anything. The third part of that bill is Hire the FBI or the NSA and help you out. So there are people not- who know how to do these things. Yes. Gabe Roth, you've been on this longer than anybody else. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You. And Emma Brown, thank you so much for that great reporting. Really appreciate your time tonight, guys. Coming up, Donald Trump has a very important decision to make this weekend before his civil rape trial resumes in a New York City courtroom on Monday. We're going to tell you what that is. But first, what the revelation of an insider witness, someone who has worked at Mar-a-Lago, what that could mean for special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents. That's next. Stay with us.
In the last 24 hours, we have gotten some bombshell new reporting from The New York Times. It describes intensifying efforts in special counsel Jack Smith's probe into Donald Trump's potential mishandling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. The Times reports on the existence of an insider witness, someone who has worked for Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago and is said to have provided investigators with a picture of the storage room where the material or the classified documents had been held. The the reporting goes on to say that prosecutors appear to be trying to fill in some gaps in their knowledge about the movement of the boxes, created in part by their handling of another potentially key witness, Mr. Trump's valet, Walt Nauda. Prosecutors believe Mr. Nauda has failed to provide them with a full and accurate account of his role in any movement of boxes containing the classified documents. And while the identity of that cooperating witness has not yet been disclosed, the former president is already sounding off over this reporting and posting to his social media site today that the special prosecutor is harassing and threatening his people over the document hoax. Additionally, two people briefed on the matter have told The Times that nearly everyone who works at Mar-a-Lago has been subpoenaed and that some who serve in fairly obscure jobs have been asked back by investigators. Joining us now to help us better understand what all of this means is one of the reporters bylined on this story, Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Michael, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I, there is a very strong focus here from your reporting on this, the, the movement of these boxes. Can you sort of more fully explain why prosecutors might be focused so specifically on where and when the boxes were? What's going on here is that the special counsel's office is trying to recreate and understand what happens inside of Mar-a-Lago in the the weeks leading up to the disclosure from Trump's side to the government that they've done a diligent search and that they have returned all the materials and what happens in the weeks after that. Because the whole question here on this part of the investigation is not necessarily just whether Trump mishandled classified documents. The question is, did he obstruct the investigation? And did they provide the government with inaccurate answers when they said they had done a diligent search and indeed looked to see if there were classified documents? And, and, you know, just to sort of sum it up, Trump's people had said that they handed everything back. And then when they conducted this search of Mar-a-Lago in August, they found many more documents. So they're trying to understand what Trump's role was in having boxes moved around and whether the movement of those boxes can show that Trump actually knew that there were classified documents that were still there at the same time that his lawyers were telling the government that there weren't. Yeah. So there's a lot of interest in the witnesses who could provide that account and also the security cameras that would have potentially captured the movements of everybody, including the movements of the boxes in the hands of certain people. Um, you're reporting that the Trump Organization head of security and his son, Matthew Calamari Sr. and Matthew Calamari Jr., they are talking to investigators What does that tell you about the Trump organization's involvement here? And how does that dovetail with their interest in this security camera footage? Well, what appears to be going on is that 
The special counsel's office does not have the cooperation of Walt Nata. This is this basically personal assistant to Trump at Mar-a-Lago who had been told or did move these boxes around and has some insight into whether Trump knew whether there was classified documents in the boxes or not. And what has happened is, is that because of a decision made by prosecutors long before the special counsel was appointed, Walt Nata has not fully cooperated with the government's investigation. The government basically indicated to his lawyers that they may charge him with a crime for not providing a full and accurate account when he had met with investigators. And that led his lawyers to basically say, OK, we're going to stop cooperating with the government. Now, the government never went forward and charged him, nor has the government gained his full cooperation. So they're going to extraordinary lengths. And they may have done this anyway if they had his cooperation, but they're now doing it without it to try and understand what surveillance footage may show of this storage facility, what, um, you know, who knew about this storage facility and what was in it to the, the reference you made earlier in our story about how nearly everyone at Mar-a-Lago has been subpoenaed at this point. Um, why wasn't the camera fully fixed on the door of the storage facility? Where is all the footage from these cameras that may have been looking at the storage facility? It's really getting into the anatomy and functioning of Mar-a-Lago to understand, okay, what was really going on inside at a time when Trump and his lawyers were repeatedly telling the government and the National Archives that they had given everything back. And you mentioned gaps in the security footage. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, so they're trying to understand why they don't have full full versions of, of the security footage and why there may be gaps in that. Are these natural gaps that occur when you have security footage? Are you retaining security footage for weeks and weeks? Um, were they asked to retain footage for weeks and weeks and they didn't? So they're, they're trying to see what was going on inside of Mar-a-Lago and the basically the runnings of Mar-a-Lago. And why was it that they don't have a full, full digital camera accounting of the things that they want? A full digital camera accounting, something everyone would like to have. Michael Schmidt, thank you for your great reporting. Thanks for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. We have one more story for you tonight. The clock is ticking for Donald Trump, who has a big decision to make and not a lot of time left to make it. That's just ahead. We leave you with one very important decision that Donald Trump is facing this weekend, whether or not to testify in his civil rape trial brought by former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll, who alleges Trump raped her in a New York City department store in the mid-90s. Yesterday, testimony was completed, and both E. Jean Carroll and Trump have technically rested their cases, meaning this trial is set to officially begin wrapping up on Monday. But the presiding judge has given Trump a deadline to decide if he wants to testify in his own defense. And that deadline, Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern, is fast approaching. Now, Trump hasn't taken the stand thus far, but the reason we are led to believe he wants to say something is because of what he said on an Irish golf course yesterday. I'll be going back early because a woman made a claim that's totally false. It was fake. She's a fake.
it's all a big scam. It's all a big political scam. So because of that, I have to leave Ireland and I have to leave Scotland where I have great properties. I have to leave early. I don't have to, but I choose to. Will you attend the trial, Mr. President? I'll probably attend. And I think it's a disgrace. I'm going to go back and I'm going to confront this one. This woman is a disgrace and it shouldn't be allowed to happen in our country. But aside from that takedown on an Irish golf course and his vow to confront E. Jean Carroll, Trump's own lawyer, Joe Tacopina, does not believe his client will be taking the stand. During a sidebar conference in the courtroom yesterday, which was in ears, was, was within earshot of a courtroom stenographer, nice one, Mr. Tacopina was heard telling Judge Kaplan, quote, I know you understand what I'm dealing with. I know you understand what I'm dealing with. Just a total attorney-client mind meld there. You know what I'm dealing with, right? I mean, anyway, either way, Trump has until this Sunday at 5 p.m. to officially make up his mind, however that process happens. That is our show for tonight. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.